you to our music team. Children can be dismissed at this time for children's ministry. Let me ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 4. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, we have been seeing Jesus teaching in parables and now we look at the evening when he had finished his teaching and he had a different lesson now to teach his disciples, one about his power and his authority and even his care for them. Mark chapter 4 verses 35 to 41 and from this passage we'll see lessons from the storm for the storm. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace or silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now approach your holy and precious word, we ask that you would help us to understand it. These ancient words impart to us not just your instruction for the way we ought to live, though they do, but they impart to us who you are. This is the very revelation of you, God. In all your power, in all your sovereignty, in all your steadfast love, the way in which you chose to reveal yourself most clearly and most specifically is in the pages of your word. And so as we look at the word written down, to see the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, we ask that just as you taught the disciples that day a lesson, that you would teach us lessons today. We confess that we sometimes can fall into the wrong understanding that once we have faith in Jesus Christ, then we've arrived and that's it. There's no, more, there's no more ways to grow. There's no identifying areas where we may lack faith or have little faith. But we see quite clearly in the example of the disciples that if they failed to have faith in circumstances, then we too can fail to have faith in circumstances. But we, say, we see at the very same time that as you, Lord Jesus showed your power and your sovereignty and your loving care over the circumstances of the disciples, you would remind us that you do the very same thing for us. You may not tell the storms of our life to stop and to be still, but you will always accompany us through those storms. Even if the storm should take our life, we know you have given us eternal life. And that always we are safe in your loving arms. Teach us these things, Lord. We believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, according to NPR, Extreme weather in the United States alone cost our nation 688 lives and a total of $145 billion in damages. 
The attempt to manipulate and to control and to change the weather has been something that mankind has been working on for many centuries now. It's a fascinating Google search. If you Google weather control, you'll find various things, including geothermal or geoclimate control, ways to manipulate the climate across the world. In fact, Sometimes it's even, uh, history has shown that it has been used as a weapon of warfare. Most recently, at least as far as we know of, it was used in Vietnam to increase the length of the monsoons to help the United States in that war. The United States in the 50s and 60s during the Cold War was very concerned about Russia's use of weather manipulation and has remained concerned about that very thing, so much so that there are organizations that have attempted to set laws on the way in which mankind can manipulate the weather. The point that I'm trying to make here is that there have been many, many efforts and billions upon billions of dollars spent to attempt to control the weather so that we can manipulate its outcome and either decrease the severity of a hurricane or increase the precipitation during a drought. And yet, it just doesn't seem to work very well. But there was a time, nearly 2,000 years ago, when a man who was asleep on a boat was woken up by his friends, his disciples. And rather than asking him to do something, they simply asked him if he cared at all that they were about to die on that boat. And the man then stood up, perhaps wiping the sleep from his eyes. Perhaps he was awoke, awake immediately. The man stood up and spoke first, not to the disciples, but to the storm. He spent zero dollars in all of his efforts. He sweat zero drops of sweat in all of his efforts. All he had to do was simply Give the command of his voice, quiet, be still, and it was. This man is the man that we have continually been encountering throughout the gospel, according to Mark, the man most likely that has brought you here. It is the man who is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who is the very embodiment of of Yahweh himself, the man who is the very glory of God. As we see this lesson that Jesus had to teach his disciples, we can tell quite clearly by their question what the overall point of this lesson is, what the overall point should be for the reader of this gospel. And yet I think that you already know this point. Mark intends to show us what God intends to reveal to us, that Jesus is God. As we look at this lesson then, as we see Jesus' attributes, or rather his actions, put his attributes on display, we gain a deeper trust and a greater confidence in order to follow him. This story has served throughout all the generations of church history to be one that certainly illustrates what Jesus intended to teach his disciples in the boat that day, but also the disciples of Jesus throughout the centuries have seen the church as that boat with the Lord inside. And as the waves and the storms all around the church rage, the Lord is there with As we see this passage unfold for us and these lessons unfold for us, I think it's helpful if we can summarize them by looking at the three different questions that are asked. First, the disciples ask a question. 
Then Jesus asks a question, and then the disciples ask another question. And I think that then this will teach us that there are three questions here that lead us to three vital lessons for discipleship. Three questions that teach us three vital lessons for discipleship. They were vital, certainly, to the disciples in the boat that day, but they're vital for the disciples here today as well. The first of these questions that will lead us then to the first lesson comes to us in verses 35 to 38. And we see there that the disciples question Jesus' care. The disciples question Jesus' care. You know the setting of the context. We've been walking through Mark chapter 4. Jesus first taught the parable of the soils. Then he explained the purpose of the parables altogether. And then he explained the purpose of that particular parable, the parable of the soils, to teach us that if you don't understand that parable, you will understand no other parable. Then in fact, what that parable reveals is that we must be careful how we listen to the teaching of Jesus. And then he went on to emphasize that point by speaking about the reality that his very identity, the light which he embodies, was meant not to be covered up, but to be revealed to all. And the word which he had left his disciples with was like the seed that was scattered all over and was the, the, the very thing that would cause the kingdom of God to grow as it finds its roots in the hearts of the people who have ears to hear the teaching of Jesus. Jesus then on that very same day, Mark tells us in verse 35, when evening had come, he said to them, to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. You remember they're on the Sea of Galilee, just outside of Capernaum. Jesus is teaching from a boat because the size of the crowd that had gathered was so large and wanted to press in on him so much that he told his disciples to put a boat in the water so that he could press out from shore and be able to teach them. This is the very place in which the disciples grow out to to pick him up from the boat that he had been teaching in. Verse 36 says, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. A lot of ink has been spilled to try to figure out what just as he was meant. I don't think it's a reference to the popular or the old popular hymn, just as I am. I think what it means is Jesus was teaching in the boat And the disciples took him from where he was in that boat and they followed his word, his command to go from that place to the other side, about 13 miles or so across to this other side of the Sea of Galilee, where as we will see next week, Jesus has some more lessons to teach his disciples and others about his authority over the demonic and even his authority over death itself. But for now, Jesus has a lesson to teach his disciples about his authority over all of creation. And so they go out to the boat, they get him, they attempt to get to the other side, but verse 37 tells us, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This was not an uncommon scene, and today it's not an uncommon scene for this very same lake to experience a pop-up storm that was strong and severe so that it would make it dangerous to attempt to cross it in a boat. The Sea of Galilee was, is significantly below sea level, and so the cold air that comes off of the mountains down into the basin that hits the warm air that rests just above the water often creates great squalls so that storms come on you fast and hard. And this is the situation that Jesus' disciples were in. Now, several of them were fishermen, and this was their home turf. This was home field for them. They knew this sea or this lake like the back of their hand. This certainly would not have been the very first storm that they were in, 
But it seems like from their response, it would have been the worst that they had yet experienced. I'm not really an avid boatsman. In fact, I'm not at all an avid boatsman. But I know, just like you know, that the water when you go out on a boat is supposed to stay outside of the boat, not inside of the boat. I know enough to know that at least, but Mark, as he captures these details, very clear details that are yet another pointer to the fact that Mark wrote down what Peter told him to write down, we see that what was happening was that the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was beginning to fill up with water. So that if the boat would fill up with water too much more, the boat would be capsized, the boat would sink, and in the midst of the storm, Jesus and the disciples would die. You may have heard before, or you may see a note perhaps in your study Bible. In 1986, there was a discovery of a boat that dates back to the time of Jesus and his disciples. It was probably not the boat that they were in, but it was most likely a boat about the size of the boat that they were in. About 13 feet long and about seven and a half feet wide, and it fit, as we estimate, about 15 people or so. So as you picture this boat being rocked by this storm, that's what you can picture in your mind. Maybe some of you have a boat about that size yourself. This is the situation they were in. This is the the vessel that they were in. But notice verse 38, what Peter, or rather Mark, points out to us. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. In the stern, asleep, which is the back of the boat, just in case. I'm not an avid boatsman, but I'm pretty sure I know what the stern is. It's the opposite of the bow. Why you can't say front and back, I have no idea. Stern. He was in the stern, and what was he doing there? He was knocked out, asleep, on a cushion. In the midst of a storm, That was so great, the waves were breaking into it and filling it up with water. What was Jesus doing? He was doing the very same thing that Jonah was doing, sleeping in the middle of the storm. Jesus had been teaching all day, and Mark has already told us that this is the evening after Jesus had been teaching all day. If you've ever taught before, then you understand how tiring it is to teach, And so Jesus had been pouring his heart out, teaching them all day long, and finally he gets a break, and what does he do in that break? He falls asleep. And he sleeps so hard, he sleeps right through the storm. Now I think there are a number of contributing factors to his sleepiness in, that, in the middle of that storm. One is certainly that he was tired. Jesus was, after all, a man, a human being, in every way that we are, yet without sin. He got tired just like we get tired. But I think there's also a deeper lesson. The deeper lesson is what Psalm 3, amongst other places, teaches us. Psalm 3 verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Over and over again, the Bible and the Psalms and the Proverbs teaches us that sleep is a result of trusting the Lord. Now, if you have sleep issues, medical sleep issues, or something like that, it's not necessarily an indicator that you don't trust the Lord. But if you lay awake at night worrying, if you lay awake at night problem solving, that may very well be an indicator to you that your trust in the Lord needs to deepen. Your view of the Lord needs to get bigger. Jesus is sleeping Because he knows what's going to happen. Because he trusts the Lord. He trusts his Father. Are we to think that the Lord Jesus Christ had no idea that this storm was going to pop up like that? 
He knew. In fact, Psalm 107 says, not only did he knew, he sent the storm. And so he's teaching his disciples a lesson, a lesson, by the way, that they would certainly learn after the Holy Spirit would come upon them. When you compare the cowardice of the disciples throughout the Gospels to the courage of the disciples throughout the book of Acts, you see clearly something changed. And so he's asleep on the cushion. And verse 38 continues to tell us, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Does that question not pierce your heart? If you're a thinking disciple and you read, teacher, do you not care that we are not perishing? It makes you go, ooh. I think you could have chosen some better words to say to the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. Teacher, would you help us because we are perishing? Teacher, could you do something about this? Teacher, we need you. I mean, something, anything other than questioning the care of the teacher. Do you not care? You see, the disciples woke Jesus with a question, but it was no ordinary question. It was a question specifically about whether or not he cared that they were about to die. We sometimes have a common practice of giving the disciples, especially giving the Jews in the Old Testament, a hard time about their failures. We look at it and we go, seriously, did he care? Duh, of course he cares. And yet let me ask you, in the difficulties of your own life, when your storms are raging, when your boat is filling, when you think that you are perishing, are you not tempted to ask Jesus the very same question? Teacher, don't you care? Lord, what's going on? I've been praying to you. I've been asking you, Lord, what, what's happening here? Why is this happening to me? Lord, I trust you. Lord, I know you love me. You know I love you. We both know it's not perfect, but I do my best. Lord, why? And although we may not admit it out loud, especially in polite company, the question that lies in our hearts is this very same question. Lord, don't you care? You'll notice, as you put the pieces together, even so far of the gospel according to Mark, and as we have the, the great privilege and the great privileged position of being this side of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, living almost 2,000 years after this, having all kinds of teachings. Probably this is not the first time you've heard the most, one of the most well-loved stories of all the church, of all of Christianity. You'll notice that the reality that Jesus was in the, vo- in the boat in the first place gives evidence to the fact that he does care. He does care. And so this leads us then to the lesson that this question teaches us. Here's the lesson. Jesus never leaves his disciples without his care. No matter how much his disciples then or now are tempted to question his care, the reality is Jesus never leaves his disciples without his care. Perhaps as he was often the spokesman for the group, And as as he was often the one who put his foot in his mouth, perhaps this was Peter who prompted this question. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. But perhaps it was. Certainly, Peter remembered this lesson quite well, didn't he? I would remind you then of what Peter tells us. 
in 1 Peter chapter 5, as he is teaching the church there about their own anxieties and their own cares. He teaches them in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. He got it. He learned the lesson. He remembered throughout the entirety of his life the time when the disciples questioned the care of Jesus. And then immediately, his mind went to the clearest demonstration of the care of Jesus Christ. The most clear demonstration of the care of Jesus Christ was not that he calmed the storm. The clearest demonstration that Jesus does in fact care is the very fact that he laid down his life for these very same people who questioned whether or not he cared. How do we know Jesus cares? He took on flesh to take up the greatest rescue mission known to man. He lived a righteous life, perfectly fulfilling the Father's commands, fulfilling and obeying every single bit of the law of God. And what did he get in return? Man hated him so much that they crucified him. And yet it was all within the Father's plan for it pleased him to crush his son. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the very fact that he does care. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory. He taught his disciples all about the kingdom. He remained with them, and then he left them. In fact, he taught them in his life and in his ministry that it was better that he go away because if he went away, he would send a helper who would be with them. And not just with them, but in them. Would give them the power, would give them the strength, would continually remind them of the very lesson that when they asked whether or not he cared, he answered the question with his finished work of atonement. Yes, Jesus cares. And yet, disciples are often tempted to ask that question, aren't we? To question the care of God, to wonder at life's circumstances, to allow life's circumstances to cloud your view of God, to to muddy up your vision of God, to impair and impede your right thinking about God is nothing new. This is what faithful saints throughout all history have always experienced. And yet we must remember that the mistake that the disciples made here in questioning the care of Jesus was that they allowed their circumstances to appear bigger than the care of their God. After all, isn't that why we question God's care? Because the the situation that we find ourselves in, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, feel so big It presses on us so hard. It squeezes us so tightly that we lose hold of the reality that God is good and that in Christ he has placed his steadfast love upon us. That nothing will separate us from the love of God. Isaiah 50 verse 10 says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servants? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's the point. When you feel as though life has put you in a place of darkness, 
when you feel as though you are tempted to question the care of God, when you feel as though you think God just doesn't care, doesn't see you, doesn't notice, the reality is that situation has been sovereignly ordained by your God to teach you the ever needed lesson that you can and must trust him. Jesus never leaves his disciples without his care. Think of the story of Joseph. We can't rightly call Joseph a disciple of Jesus, but he was a faithful member of God's family. We'll see him in glory. Joseph's life serves as an example to us of how we should endure trials. Did Joseph have trials? Man. His own brothers betrayed him, beat him, stole his coat, threw him down in a pit. They were going to kill him, but Reuben said, no, let's spare him. Reuben planned to go back and get him out of the hole and deliver him to his dad. But before he could do that, Judah, that's right, Judah, the one from whom the Christ came, Judah said, no, let's sell him into slavery and be rid of him. Sold into slavery, bought by Potiphar. And very quickly, because of the blessing of God, he rose to high ranks in Potiphar's house. Potiphar set him over the house. And then Potiphar's wife set her eyes on him because he was handsome. And continually she tried to take him. And continually he refused. Until one day she grabbed him, forced herself on him, so much so that Joseph ran away without his coat on And she now had proof to be able to frame him and say, he tried to take advantage of me. Look, here's his coat. So that Potiphar then threw him in prison where he sat wondering, perhaps, why? Why am I here? I did nothing wrong. And then Pharaoh had a cupbearer and a baker who he got upset with and threw in that very same prison. One day, they were clearly perplexed, and Joseph, in the midst of an unjust imprisonment, cares enough to ask them, why are your faces long? What's wrong? And they say, well, we had some dreams, and we're not sure what those dreams mean. And Joseph says, does not the interpretation of dreams belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So they tell him his dreams. He interprets the dream. The cupbearer, you're going to be restored. The baker, you're going to be killed. Three days later, the dreams come to pass. Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him when he was delivered to Pharaoh. But when he was delivered to Pharaoh, he was so excited, he completely forgot about Joseph. And Joseph remained for several more years in an unjust imprisonment. Until one day, Pharaoh had a dream. That left him perplexed. And the cupbearer said, you remember when you got mad at me and threw me in prison? Yeah, there was a guy there. I was supposed to tell you about him, but I kind of forgot. There's a guy there who interpreted my dream and it actually came came to pass. And he interpreted the baker's dream and that dream came to pass too. And so Pharaoh said, well, bring him to me. And Pharaoh told Joseph his dream, and Joseph again gave the credit not to himself and his ability, but to God. It's the Lord who interprets dreams. And Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. Joseph interprets the dream. It turns out that there was going to be a famine that came on the land after seven years of plenty. And Joseph said, this is what you need to do. You need to store up grain in the plenty so that you have it in the famine. And then all the world will come to you because you'll be the only one who has grain in the entire world. And Pharaoh says, well, okay, great. We need somebody to help the project. Joseph, you're the man. In fact, I'm going to put you in charge of Egypt, second in man under me. I and I alone will be the only one who is over you in all of Egypt, in all of the world." Joseph faithfully executes his position, faithfully serves the Lord, and and lives out the position that God had given to him through Pharaoh. And then one day, because all the food was gone, guess who comes knocking? Joseph's brothers. 
They come back and they, of course, have no idea who Joseph is because not only would he not look the same, but he would, you know, had he aged a bit, but he was all dressed up in Egyptian garb. So Joseph goes through the motions and to summarize the story, a long story short, you're thinking it's already a long story, guy, get to the point. After Joseph sort of dupes his brothers a little bit and gets them to bring family members back to Egypt. He reveals his identity to his brothers and his brothers are broken over what they had done and Joseph declares to them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Did Joseph complain? Maybe, but the Bible doesn't tell us that he did. If anybody in the world would have had reason for their circumstances to make them bitter and angry at everyone else, it would have been Joseph. But did he allow that to happen? No. Why? Because he knew this lesson, that the Lord never forsakes his people. The Lord never leaves his people without his care. And so if there's something difficult that his people are going through, it must be because the Lord wants them to go through that. And the Lord teaches them a lesson through that. And the Lord wants them to understand in more deep ways than they could learn that lesson without the difficulty that he cares for them. So this first question then leads us to the first lesson that Jesus never leaves his disciples without his care. And then there's a second question. I'll probably have to go a little bit faster through these. You know how that goes. The second question in verses 39 to 40, and this this question, or this time, comes from Jesus. And here we see Jesus questions the disciples' faith. In verses 39 and 40, Jesus questions the disciples' faith. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still, or silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. First, he has a rebuke for the storm. Then he has a rebuke for the disciples. He wakes up. He speaks to the storm, to the wind, and to the waves. He says, silence. ESV translates it peace. That's not a good translation. It's really something like, I think the New American Standard says hush. The legacy updates that with silence. But those two words are the, are the essence of this word. Stop from your noise making is what Jesus is saying. Be still waters. Now you remember what was happening to these waters, right? Waves that were breaking in over the boat, filling up the boat. And notice what happens immediately as soon as Jesus speaks. And there was a great calm You ever been to a water park before? You go to a water park and as kids, my favorite thing, I don't go to water parks anymore because now that I think a little bit more clearly about what people do in water, I just (laughs) kind of grossed out. I just ruined it for you, sorry. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Peter, edit that out. I'm just kidding, you don't have to. My favorite thing to do at the water parks was the wave pool. I loved it. It was so fun. Body surf on the waves. And you know how they work. There's this massive sort of ball thing in it. And it, there's some kind of contraption that makes it go up and down, up and down, so that the waves stir up. And eventually there's large waves in the wave pool. And you can enjoy body surfing and, and just do everything you want in the wave pool. When the wave pool, when the when it's time for the wave pool to stop and the those little contraptions stop making waves, is there instant calm? No. We used to try to mimic the wave pool when we would swim in, in uh, our cousin's grandma's pool, and we would do our best to make a bunch of waves. And when we would stop, you think the waves stopped instantly? What kind of power must it have taken? For there to be such a great windstorm to then go to immediate great calm. You notice the repetition of the word great? You'll see it three times. Great windstorm to great calm. 
How much power must it take to say, hush, be still? An instant glass all across the lake. I don't know that we can even quantify that power. But Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson that they will need as they take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That the very one who has the power to speak to the storm and stop it instantly is the very one who has set his love upon you and aims that power at you for your good. And so this is why then he rebukes his disciples in verse 40. And it's a rebuke that aims straight at their hearts. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now the word afraid there in verse 40 is actually the word for cowardice. Jesus is not so much saying, why are you so afraid? He's saying, why are you being such cowards? It's used later in Revelation to describe the cowardly who will not be admitted into the kingdom of God. It means to be timid or cowardly. It's not the same Greek word as afraid that we'll see later on in the disciples' response to Jesus' power. Why are you being such chickens? Why are you being so timid? Why are you being so cowardly? And what does Jesus connect their cowardice to? A lack of faith. I can sympathize, can't you? I like water, but I don't really like it so much to go on a boat very far away from the shore. That's why I was in the army and not the navy. I'm good. I like my feet on the ground. If I was in the middle of a storm like this and the water was coming in, I mean, I do know how to swim, but I would be pretty scared. I would want to get out of there too. And yet Jesus aims his words right at their hearts. Why are you being such cowards? Don't you trust me? And that's the great question, isn't it? Don't you trust me? Do you not have any faith at all, Jesus says to them? Now you remember what had been given to the disciples at this point. The secret of the kingdom of God. They were holding the secret of the kingdom of God and yet in their practice, they did not use that secret. Rather, they responded in their flesh like a bunch of cowards. Don't you trust me? And so Jesus' question leads us then to this lesson. A disciple's fears are indicators of a lack of faith. Their fears and our fears. A disciple's fears are indicators of a lack of faith. You might likely find that to be convicting. I do. But I want to point out to you the other side of the coin. It is convicting, but it's also encouraging. You see, Jesus' care is demonstrated for them in that question. We live in a society where politeness seems to rule the day. Where we don't really tell the truth so much because, well, that would be mean. Now, obviously, there are mean ways to tell the truth, so don't take me too far. But how often has someone had something like a... a, piece of food hanging from their beard or something and no one tell them about it well I didn't want to embarrass them I got a piece of bologna hanging from my beard embarrass me it's already happening I just don't know about it I don't eat bologna by the way just we often want to do the polite thing rather than the right thing but your Lord does not function like that Your Lord does the most caring thing for you. Whose idea was it to go across the lake? Jesus' idea? 
Do you think he knew that this was going to happen? Yes. He knew it was going to happen, and he knew he was going to teach them this lesson because he knew they needed this lesson. He knew that they needed to know that he is the one whom Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. He knew they needed to know that he is the one that they had read about for so long who can still those storms. He knew that they needed to know that they could trust him. You see, our fears indicate areas where we lack faith, but they indicate to us opportunities to grow in that faith. It's not just that you should feel bad that you lack faith. You do, and you should but it's that you should feel overwhelmingly loved by a God who cares enough to point out that failure to you and to help you and meet you in that failure so that you can grow. How does he do that? It's the thing that we all hate, trials. Listen to James 1. You know it already. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let me stop there. And usually when we read that or we teach that, we all start laughing and say, ha, yeah, right. Can I just kindly tell you and tell myself, that is a sinful response to the word of God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What was Jesus doing? He was testing the genuineness of the disciples' faith so that they would grow in steadfastness, so that they would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is another lesson that Peter understood. You remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. As he unfolds to them the greatness of their triune God's salvation, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line, disciple. You need trials, otherwise you won't grow. You want a better, more strong and resilient, more pure faith? Get ready, because it's coming. And it's nothing to joke about. In fact, it's everything to glory about. Praise God for trials. Praise God that my life is hard because Jesus is teaching me that he meets me in this hard place. Because I resonate with the words of David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Do not, do not let the circumstances of your life cloud out the reality that God is sovereign over them and he cares about you. He cares about you. He laid his life down for you. Paul says in Romans 8, how could he who did not spare his own son not graciously give us all things in him? You have, Christian, you have everything you need in Jesus in your difficult time. But if you're not in a Christian, if you're not in Christ, then let me ask you, what do you have? All you have is a hard life. That's it. You stand outside of this Savior's great love. 
And yet right now you could repent of your sin and you could be a recipient of that love. And you too could have the ballast of God's care still you in every storm. The disciples needed that lesson. And I think we do too. Then finally, the third question that leads us to the third essential lesson every disciple needs to learn comes in verse 41. We see there that the disciples question Jesus' identity. The disciples question Jesus' identity. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Now, this is not the word for cowardice or timidity. This is the normal, regular word for fear. This is the the word that we get our word phobia from. They feared. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Did they know who Jesus was? To some degree. I'll remind you, what had been given to them already? The secret of the kingdom of God, right? They knew, but they didn't know. This is a reminder to us that every disciple needs to learn. Faith and knowledge of God is not a light switch you turn on and off. It's an ever-growing meter. You do not have enough faith yet. You do not know God deeply enough now, even if you know Jesus Christ. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you've arrived. We've made it. All we have to do now is just get smarter about what the Bible says, stay in our little Christian bubble, talk about those evil people out there, and we're good. We're going to heaven. Ugh. Ugh. I don't want anything to do with that nonsense. They question his identity. Why? Because they saw his glory. Why were they afraid? Because they recognized he looks like us, but he's not like us. He talks like us, but he ain't like us. He's God. The disciples knew their Old Testament. They knew those Psalms that talk about God being the one who stills the storm, God being the one who made everything, God being the one who sustains everything, who sits enthroned over everything. And so when they saw a man speak to a storm and it stopped, they recognized that's God. Whoa. And this is why they were filled with great fear. Isn't this what Moses was filled with when he realized who he was talking to at the burning bush? Isn't this what Isaiah realized when he saw the glory of God in the, from the throne of God? Isn't this what John the apostle would see and experience as he saw the embodied, glorified Lord Jesus Christ come to deliver a message to him for his churches? What do they do? They don't run up and give Jesus a hug. They fall down as though they're dead in fear. And yet it doesn't make them run from them, from him. In fact, it makes them run to him. Because when you realize that the fear of God is the fear that trumps all fears and drives out every other fear, you want to go to him. Because in him, in him alone, is the courage that you need to live a life that counts for God's glory. It's the fear of God that drives out every other fear. And this is why the disciples had the courage that they had. How could Peter say, no, don't crucify me right side up. I'm not worthy of that. Crucify me upside down. How could he say that? Because his fear for Jesus was so great. And his love for Jesus was so deep. Because he knew that Jesus' care for him was so wonderful. Do anything you want to me. I know Jesus. Establish whatever policies you want. I know Jesus. Enforce anything you want. 
I know Jesus. You won't shake me. I know Jesus. I will serve him. I will die for him. I will live for him. I will do anything and everything he wants because he is the one that I fear. This fear leads them to ask the question. It's an important question, even all throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's a question that even Israel asked as they saw the overwhelming power of God. In Exodus 14, 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. You see, that's the impact that the question is intended to create in you. Do you believe in this one? And you might say, yes, I believe. Does that belief then cause you to be afraid of nothing else? If you're like me, you have to say, I want it to, but I confess there are some things I'm afraid of. I'm deathly afraid to lose my family. Sometimes I think about that and I pray, Lord, give me the faith that even if you take away my family, I will faithfully serve you no matter what. But I can tell you in all sincerity, that is a genuine fear that I hope I never have to face. But if I do, Jesus cares. Just like he has met every other saint who suffered throughout all of history, he cares. He will meet you in that place in which you fear. All you have to do is believe. Believe that he is greater. Believe that his care for you, his love for you, is so much greater than any difficult circumstance that you will ever face. And if you do that, then friend, Jesus will help you increasingly to grow out of that fear. And maybe it's in this life, or maybe it's in glory, but you will shed that fear. Because the lesson that the disciples had to learn that day, in that moment, was that Jesus is the all-powerful God who has set his love on his disciples. That's the lesson. That's the overall lesson. In fact, none of the other lessons mean anything if that lesson is not true. He's not just sovereign, he's not just powerful, but he aims that sovereignty and he aims that power at you in love if you're in Christ. Let the reality of the love of God in Jesus Christ blow your mind every time so that when the trials of your life threaten you and stomp on your heart, you can say, I know Jesus. I'm going to close this morning with a poem that John Newton wrote, a poem that was later turned into a a hymn. Goes by a couple different names, but the original name is Prayer Answered by Crosses. I've put it up on the screen because I wanted to do anything I could to make it easier to follow along. John Newton wrote this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I now employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy 
that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Heavenly Father, teach us that same lesson. We confess, I confess, we have a long way to go. But we have a good God who loves us and who will accompany us on every step of that journey. Give us this type of faith, Lord. This type of faith that trusts you no matter what the circumstances might be. This type of faith that shows the world that although our circumstances might be hard, we have a God whose love outweighs any difficult circumstance we might endure. Teach us these lessons from the storm for the storms that you take us through and help us to remember that it's by your very own design and it's for our good and your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.